As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. As humans living in the 21st century, we have been duped. Duped into believing that the world around us is the best it has ever been. It couldn't be further from the truth. All we have to do is open our eyes and look around us at the state of the world. We have to ask, how did we get to this point? A few months ago, we were being bombarded by images of the atrocities happening on the ground in Palestine, and quite rightly, we felt angry and disgusted. At which point, we have to ask ourselves again, how did we get to this point? And then we have to reflect on the events again, and we see that Muslims across the world are raising the flag of Palestine. But who is raising the flag of Islam? To understand our present, we have to know our past. And for that reason, it is absolutely imperative that as Muslims living in the 21st century, we know about the life of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, Rahimullah. So this episode is for you so that you know that Sultan Abdul Hamid II lived. And knowing that he lived, you know what he did. And you know what we got from him as an ummah, and you know what we lost as an ummah by the actions of those that plotted and worked against him. Without much further ado, I present to you Episode 12, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, A Case Study, with Dr. Ali Adzali, the Vice-Chancellor of the Dallas College in Cape Town. Sultan Abdel Hamid II, the Ghazi, the Emperor of the Ottomans, the Caliph of the Faithful, the Great Hakan, the Emperor of the Rum, must be considered one of the great commanders of Islam, but not because of his victory in the battlefield, but because of his extreme defense of the Deen and Islam in a time of betrayal, in a time of insurrection, in a time of nationalism, in the time of ideologies, when even the Muslims were accepting a new definition of what Islam was and what the main purpose in life was in the name of the will to power and the technique of the capitalist system. In such a general collapse that is still, we are still living, in fact, we are living in an interregnum, we are waiting for a new leader to emerge and to take the responsibility. Sultan Abdelhamid is a guidance and is a model for all of us. And as I said, we can compare him to Suleiman the Magnificent or Mehmed the Conqueror, but not because of his victory, but because his 
genius, his political astuteness, and his devotion to Rasulullah and to the Deen. That's where we see the greatness of Sultan Abdel Hamid. Sultan Abdel Hamid defended as a bulwark the Deen for more than 30 years in extreme situation. So for us, the study of Sultan Abdel Hamid is important as a case study to reconnect to what has been interrupted. A path has been interrupted. Has been interrupted by the young Turks, has been interrupted by the secularization process promoted by Mustafa Kemal and his cronies. For us as Muslims, looking at Sultan Abdel Hamid means reviving hope, means building a bridge over the marshland of the last hundred years, the marshland created by these reformers at the pay of the great European powers. How did you first come across the life of Sultan Abdul Hamid II? My encounter with Sultan Abdul Hamid happened many years ago in 1995. I was a young man, I was 24, I was studying at the University of Parma. And I had the honor of being invited by Sheikh Abdul Qadir in this special trip to Istanbul. Now, it was a very eventful moment because since 1923, on the year of the foundation of the Turkish Republic, there has not been a representative of Islam in the Turkish government. You must remember that in 1923, when Mustafa Kemal became president of the Turkish Republic, he started the process of secularization that was aimed at wiping out every remnant of the Osmanli tradition. First thing that comes to mind is the fact that he changed the alphabet. Before, the language was spoken was called Osmanli and was a sort of mix of different languages. The foundation was Turkish, but then there was Persian words, Arabic words, Armenian words even, and it was written in Arabic characters. He introduced a new alphabet and a reformation of the language. Now, a first consequence of it was to stop the people from consulting the old text. i give you an example. Sheikh Adukadir Sufi mentioned in his speech this event, talking about Rumi, and he said, as a consequence of this reformation, people were not able to read the great commentary of the Matnawi. Also, a whole tradition that, in my opinion, constituted and was based on the original spirit of the people went lost. And not just that, the, the political structure that was adopted was an expression of liberal capitalism from the West. So, once in 1995, Dr. Erbakan won the election, it was like a revolution. Previous attempt had been stopped by coup by the NATO army. But in 1995, Dr. Erbakan, with the Refa party, won the election and became prime minister. Sheikh Al-Dukadir, with his profound insight, understood the time and he went to his support. He understand the importance of this political event, this political transformation. I remember Istanbul was 
an, an amazing place at the time. There was a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, we went to many Dika, we met many Shuyuk. We had a wonderful speech at the Palace Port of Istanbul, where um, also Roger Garoudi, that was the previous ex-secretary of the French Communist Party, then became Muslim, gave a speech. And, and it was very exciting. And it was in that occasion that I got to learn the life and the importance of Sultan Abdelhamid II. I remember we went for the Jumu'ah at the Blue Mosque, and then we went to the tomb of the, the Osmanli in Sultan Ahmed, and we made the dua uh, over the tomb of Sultan Abdelhamid. And that is an experience that left a mark in my life. Since then, I developed a great interest and a great love for the Turkish culture, not just political, but also mainly spiritual. And somehow for me, the encounter with Sultan Abdelhamid was the encounter with this tradition. Why? Because Sultan Abdelhamid has been the last defender of this long tradition that uh, emerged with the Osmanli dynasty and that was interrupted in 1923. But superficially, because let's say on a subterranean level, the tradition continues, there are still men who are protecting this, this profound knowledge. From my knowledge, Sultan Abdul Hamid wasn't born to be the Sultan. There was his, the, his brother was in front of him. How did he end up getting the throne, so to speak? Before him was his uncle, uh, Abdul Majid, uh, then Abdelaziz, from 1861 to 1876. Abdelaziz has taken an independent position that has upset the Grand Vizier, Midat Pasha. Midat Pasha was a man of the British at the time. So he was opposing the constitutionalist circles of Turkey. They deposed him and then he dies, apparently of a suicide, but is not known the cause. And then for a short time, Murad, half-brother of Abdelhamid, is entered as a sultan, but the man has serious problem with alcoholism and he has serious mental problem. He can't take that responsibility. Faced by this situation, the Grand Vizier, that was a man, man who really had the power and the Osmanli Dawlet, forces Murad to resign and they reach an agreement with Abdulhamid, and Abdulhamid is entered as new sultan. Now, the deal implies the approval of the constitution, the first constitution, constitution based on a liberal view, the liberal view of a constitutional monarchy of other European countries. And in fact, Sultan Abdulhamid, once he has risen to power, wait and see, look for the development. Now, you must remember that when Sultan Amin Amin comes to power in 1876, he's facing probably one of the worst times in the 19th century. Why? Because in 1875, the Ottoman government declared a sovereign default on the repayment of her foreign loans. These loans were taken during the war, Crimean War, Crimea War saw the Osmanli Dowlet, Britain, France, and Savoy against Russia for the control of the Crimean territory. The, the, original, the excuse was the fact that the Russian 
claim the right to defend the Christians in the Holy Land, and while the French claimed the right to defend the Maronite Christians there. So they were clashing, but obviously that is just rhetoric. The reality of the situation was the interest for what they called the sick men of Europe, so the territory of Osmali Daulet. Now, the terms of the loans were exceptionally favorable to the British and French banks, in this case, the Rothschild. And it's interesting because Sultan Abdel Hamid will see in these loans and the death, the death that follow as one of the main reasons of the collapse of the Osmali Daulet. Years later, he will mention that. He said, I inherited the situation already compromised by the enormous interest that we had to pay on this loan from the 1853 to 1856 war in Crimea. How did that debt arise? We must remember that the 19th century is the center of the rise of the colonial West. The Osmanli Daulat, since 1774 and the Treaty of Kuchuka in Arja with the Tsar, already started losing terrain. The general excuse, the general reason that was used, the casus belli, to, to move and take this vast territory of Osmanli was generally a religious issue. They would create a religious issue to sparkle and in insurrection and violence, and then intervene in defense of the Christians. You must remember that the Osmanli Daulat included the Christian population of the Balkans, were mixed, because if, if the Bosnian, part of the Bosnian were Muslim, other were not Muslim, the Serbian were Christian, Croatian were Christians, Montenegrins were Christian, Albania was mixed, Greece was obviously Christian, and Bulgaria was Christian. And if you speak about Serbia, Albania, Montenegro, and Bulgaria and Macedonia, we talk about Orthodox Christian. So each power, in order to get a part of the spoil, what they call the sick men of Europe, became the promoter of a crusade in defense of the Christian people under the Osmali Daulat. Now, geopolitically, you must remember that Russia doesn't have an access to the Mediterranean Sea. So Russia, and it's been one of the great geopolitical needs of Russia to find access to the Mediterranean Sea. And one of the main point of the British politics in the Mediterranean was to stop the Russian from having the taxes. The British are the one who promoted that process of reformation that we call Tanzimat, who started officially in 1840 with Sultan Abdel Maji, but in reality already Selim III and Mahmoud already started the process of reformation starting from the armies, famous the case of 1826, when Mahmoud II bombarded uh, the barracks of the Yenitsir in Istanbul because they rebelled against the reformation and he wiped them out. He called some troops trained by Europeans, 10,000 soldiers, and they bombarded the Yenitsir, 6,000 people died, and when they chased them, the, hunt, the manhunt continued in the city. But the reformation of the army was the first important step. Who were the Yenicheri? The Yenicheri were the elite corps of Osmanli. 
They were recruited in the Balkans in a process called Dev Shirme. They would take young Christian children from Bosnia, Serbia, and other Albania, many were Albanians, and they would take them to Istanbul and train them. Some would become the bulk of the uh, say special forces of the Osmanli. Others, the more gifted or the one with a special vocation, would become architect like Sinan, the school of Sinan, Imar Sinan, or, or Grand Wazir. Because by choosing ex-slave as a public servant, he was sure of their loyalty because their loyalty was not to a family, like in a feudal context, but their loyalty was to the Sultan. It's very significant that Mahmoud finds the first opposition to his reformation from the Yenitseri. The Yenitseri, generally the sign of their sedition was throwing the pot. They had this massive pot, the hierarchy was defined according to the work in the kitchen, and when uh, anyway, would rebel, they would overthrow the pot, and that was a sign. They first rebelled against the first reformation, that's before the Tanzimat. The Yenitseri, the reformers, that's the Bida. The aim was to create a sort of state similar to the Western powers that were emerging. So change, reform the army, reform the public administration, reform the system of education, etc. etc. Now the, the Yenitseri rebelled. The Yenitseri somehow represented the traditional spirit. Because of that, he massacred them, he killed them all. But the process of reformation, as defined in historical terms, as defined as Tanzimat, starts in 1839 with Sultan Abdel Majid. They start a program of reform with a Gulane imperial rescript, including financial reform, aimed at modernizing the country. Now, Abdul Majid worked closely with the British. Now, the interest of the British in the Mediterranean Sea can be understood by the importance of the Suez Canal. So, controlling those areas of the of um, Osmanli Daulat, meaning all the eastern Mediterranean, was vital for the British. Now, this process of reformation in 1839, called Tanzimat, I said, was, in my opinion, controlled by Great Britain. And the aim was to create a modern state on a liberal, and we can say capitalistic basis. So it was a profound reformation, a profound transformation. I can mention some of the main uh, feature of this reformation uh, because they're quite impressive per se. In 1840 we have the introduction of the first Ottoman paper banknotes. Then the opening of the first post office in the Daulat. The reorganization of the finance system according to the French model. Therefore the creation of the bureaucracy. The reorganization of the civil and criminal code. Again according to the model of Napoleon. Eh? The establishment of the Majlis Marifumumie, the prototype of the first Osmanli parliament in a sense. We have the abolishment of the death penalty for apostasy from Islam. We have the organization of the army and a regular method of recruiting. 
fixing the duration of the military service, the adoption of a national anthem on the model of a European country. We have the first nationwide Ottoman census. Remember, the people didn't have a sworn name. So to have a census uh, was an incredible novelty for them eh? to, to define the citizenship. We have the first national identity cards. We have establishment of the first Western University. The, the establishment of Academy of Sciences the first European-style courts and Supreme Judiciary Council. Uh, with the Hatti Mayun of 1856, we have the full legal equality for citizens. And that was an enormous change for Turkey. Remember that the Osmanli Daula was run according to the millet system, so you are not defined according to your ethnic origin, but according to your religion. Once the, the Committee of Union and Progress took power, they had to transform that and create an idea of nation on, on, the basis, on a racial basis, on an ethnic basis. But amongst the Osmanli before, there was nothing like that. Sultan Abdelhamid was son of a Circassian lady, and many of the main wives of the Sultan were not Turkish. It's interesting because while before there was nothing as an idea of nationalism, it was a vast political unity, and the, and the Sultan was super partis, was above the different community, and the community were ruled according to their religion. The attempt of the reformers is to create a modern citizen on the model of the French Revolution. So you are not defined according to your belief, to your way of life, to, your, uh, to what you consider sacred, but you are defined according to your blood. So religion becomes something secondary in the life of this new citizen. Ooh, wow. So that's an enormous transformation. That's part of the Tanzimat. As, we, as I said, the idea was to create a state on the model of the French Revolution. So this was a complete overhaul of society from top to bottom. Complete, utter and complete. You see, they wanted to destroy the essence of the Daulat. They wanted to destroy that spirit and in its place, substituted with the spirit of the French Revolution, with the citizens of the French Revolution, with the liberté, égalité, fraternité. That brings no freedom, certainly no equality, and certainly no fraternity. The only fraternity is amongst the Freemasons in their lodges, what they call each other brothers. The rest, it doesn't apply. And this reformation continues? Continues until 1878. Sultan Abdelhamid, is elected on the condition of granting a constitution for the people. He grants the constitution and they create a parliament, the two chambers, that includes a huge amount of Christian and Jews and Muslim, all equal. In the parliament? In the parliament. Equal citizens? Equal citizens. And this is, this is, this is the Osmanli Empire that Sultan Abdul Hamid II inherited. Sultan Abdul Hamid takes on the government in 1876 when there is a default in the repayment of the debt to the great European banking houses. The debt contracted during the Crimean War. There is constant instability in the Balkans. All the Christian uh, nation, part of the Osmanli Daulat, rebel one after the other. Now, the Osmanli government 
is unable to pay the salaries to the civil servants. Why? Because 80% of the income goes to repay the interest to the bankers. In April 1876, the Russian promote a um, nationalistic Bulgarian movement and they attack a police station in Pretzvitsha. The Tsar is looking for an excuse, an opportunity to take over all the Balkans. That is his aim. So there's an incident, a terrorist attack. There were obviously agent provocateurs from Russia, and there's a response by Bosmali. The troops are all busy in Bosnia. What they have, they have Circassian irregular troops, and they use them against the Bulgarians. Remember, this is a time of constant migration, massive migration. All population were Muslim. They had to leave certain areas after the Russian conquest. So they are unhappy. They are revengeful. And when they are given opportunity, they take their revenge on the Bulgarian. And uh, as a consequence of this massacre, a counter-massacre, the Tsar decided to march on Istanbul. Now, the first reaction is to find a solution. Sultan Abdel Hamid inherits this very precarious situation. So we have this enormous debt. We have the rebellion of what was left of the, of the provinces in, in the European side, in the Balkans. And, uh, and there is an interest by the great powers in order to up to stop the Russian from declaring war on the Osmanli Daulat, because they were sure that the Osmanli Daulat would have collapsed. So they organized the Conference of Constantinople. Sultan Abdelhamid is still under the protection of Midat Pasha. Midat Pasha is a British agent. He's a prime minister, but he's a British agent as well. And Midat Pasha try to avoid the redistribution of land by offering to the great powers a constitution. They believed that by showing a constitution and opening a parliament, they would please the European powers. Why? Because that would include the protection of a Christian, now we call it citizen, and they think that by offering a constitution and showing a sign of change with the parliament, to change the mind of the great powers. Obviously, they were completely deluded, and, and Sultan Abdelhamid was aware of it. What follows is the uh, Russian-Turkish War from 1877 to 1878. That is a disaster. The parliament proves incapable. Disaster follows disaster. The Russian enter the Daulat from the west, from Bulgaria, and from the east, from the Caucasus. The idea is to close them and take over Istanbul, coming from, from the east and the west. The Osmanli army can't really offer much resistance. They manage to resist, but the army is almost in Istanbul until the Israeli, in order to protect the interest of the bankers of Europe, send the British fleet in the Dardanelles. The Tsar understands the significance of the action and they stop. 
a stop invasion. First, there is a treaty of San Stefano that implies the creation of an independent Bosnia and of a great Bulgaria divided into parts. Bulgaria is very important because it's on the Black Sea, uh, on the Mediterranean and on the Black Sea. The Treaty of San Stefano reflects the event of the war and is favorable to the Russian. Now, Bismarck, the Israeli, the great power, cannot accept it. So there is a new conference in Berlin that redefines the clauses of the Treaty of San Stefano. The outcome of it is that Osmanli Daula has lost all his European territory except what was called Macedonia at the time and part of Bulgaria. Now, this has an enormous impact on Sultan Abdel Hamid. First of all, Sultan Abdel Hamid is aware of a disaster of a parliament and he closes the parliament. He abolishes the constitution and the constitution of 1876 will come back only in 1908 after the forced abdication of Sultan Abdel Hamid. So Sultan Abdel Hamid freezes the constitution. Closes the parliament and takes everything in his hand. He moved from Don Mabace to Ildis, his new palace. It's a sober palace. And Domobaji was, was the palace built in the European style. Correct, correct. It reflected that spirit of the of, of Tanzimat. Right. Sultan Dalamit, he couldn't go back probably to Topkapi, that was too ancient, that structure was not responding to the need of the time. He built his own palace called Ildis, that means star, and he started there to reorganize. So his first major move as the Sultan is to scrap the constitution Correct. and take full power. Close the parliament, takes all the power in his hand and create a proper administration. In the moment that the European territories are lost because as a consequence of the Congress of Berlin, they are given partly under the protectorate of the Habsburg, part under the protectorate of Russia, and some region gain independence. Some are restructured as a nation, they're divided in parts, but the main outcome is that the European territories of Ismaili Dawlet are lost. So what happens? What can Sultan Abdelhamid do? First of all, he realizes that Osmanli Daulat is Muslim. In the moment that the Christians are not part anymore of, of, of the Daulat, the main focus will be on the Muslim territories. Anatolia, Iraq, the Shams, what is now Lebanon, Syria, Ijaz, the Ijaz, where the British were busy creating an insurrection, Egypt, Egypt is very important. Egypt almost took in two different wars Istanbul. And we must keep in mind that the British, the Israeli, backed by the Rothschild, have opened the Suez Canal. 1869, they opened the Suez Canal. They want the absolute control of the routes to India. That's why Sultan Abdel Hamid buys from the British their support during the Russian-Turkish War of 1877 by giving them, for a short term of time, Cyprus. If you look at the map, Cyprus is like 
a warship in the Mediterranean in front of the Suez Canal. It's very important for the British to have control of that area to maintain the hegemony over that very important strait that is very lucrative because a lot of ships go through. The Rothschild are directly involved into that. Remember that uh, the Israeli bought the majority of the shares from the KDV against the French. They didn't want the French to take the control of the Suez Canal thanks to a loan by the Rothschild that was not even written on paper. <laughs> the Rothschild agreed of giving him four million pounds and at the question, what is the collateral, he said, the British government. There is not a single written document about that event. Was that just verbal? And that tells you how this Benjamin Disraeli of Venetian origin, and let's keep Venice in mind because Venice will return on the scene. This Venetian uh, Jewish man had a strong and close relationship with the Rothschild. And he was the prime minister. Let's not forget, yes, he was a prime minister of the Conservatives, and he was also the man who granted the title of Empress to Queen Victoria. It's very important to remember that. Now, Sultan Abdelhamid becomes a Muslim ruler, in a sense. He was Muslim, but the territory is mostly a land of Islam. So he takes in his hand the responsibility of defending Dar al-Islam against the British, against the French, against the Russian. And he manages with incredible astuteness and political insight to play the rivalries amongst the great power. So he plays the French against the British, the British against the Russian, and with his incredible acumen he manages to keep the situation as it is. In fact, in the beginning of the 1900s, as a great American historian, Justin McCarthy said, the Daulat was in a healthy situation. The Daulat collapsed because of betrayal, but we will get there. Sultan Abdelhamid is forced by the event to take on his title of caliph and call on the Muslim to save the authority that he represents and to save those territories. The great political advisor in this case, amongst the Arab, was Sheikh Abul Huda Sayyadi, the great Rifai Sheikh of Istanbul. Now, Sheikh Abul Huda and his circle published more than 220 books in Arabic to defend the legitimacy of the Osmanli Caliphate. Why? Because the British were promoting some very uh, mysterious character like Jamaluddin al-Afghani and they were dealing already with the Arab tribes in order to create a split and sparkle an insurrection. Sultan Abdelhamid is aware of it. In fact, he calls Jamaluddin al-Afghani to Istanbul, but not as an advisor. He's aware that he's not an Afghan, he's Iranian, is a Shia. Sheikh Abul Huda Sayyad is great enemy called Al Mutafgin. So Jamaluddin Al Afghani was Al Mutafgin, and we know that Jamaluddin Al Afghani was initiated into masonry in Paris during his French year. If you read the document of the time, people who met him, they even question the fact that he was Muslim. 
because Jamaluddin al-Afghani was promoting a vision that was materialistic, was uh, what they call at the time positivism in France. So the idea that by using science you can improve the life of the citizens and science becomes the main channel, the main instrument to create a perfect society. And in fact, Sultan Abdelhamid uses Jamaluddin al-Afghani as a tool in the attempt to find the balance with the Persian. Jamaluddin al-Afghani will contact some Persian. Remember that in the province of Iraq, the Shia were spreading their teaching. As we know now, half, more than half is Shia. And, and they were trying to stop that phenomenon. And try to find the, create an alliance with the Persian circles in order to not to worry on the east and focus and save the territories. Now this this policy is called Ittihad Islam. Uh, the name is Ittihad Islam, it means Union of Islam. And this idea will inform not only his foreign policy, but also his domestic policy. So once he has taken responsibility in his hand, once the parliament has been shut and the constitution has been uh, suspended, he takes all the power in his palace, he has direct access to every important issue. He was a very hard-working man, just to describe the man, he liked physical exercise, he would wake up every morning before Fajr, he would take his bath in the morning and then he walked the whole day. His pastime was carpentry. He would do his, uh, his, his dhikr, he would read his Bukhari, he was a great reader of a collection of Hadith of al-Bukhari, read his Quran, and that has been confirmed by his daughter and by um, a different person who work close to him. But in the moment he's faced by this continuous attack from this great power who want a part of the territory, he calls on a Muslim. He becomes aware of the title of caliph and takes the responsibility in his hands. It's very important. And he calls on the Muslim. In fact, I was over here where the feds start spreading. In Cape Town, the feds became a common symbol of loyalty to the caliph. Even in India, we have a strong connection with Sultan Abdelhamid. And um, people is aware of the importance of having a center having a caliph in that case. We started the process of reformation of the bureaucracy. One of his main points was efficiency. He liked an efficient public administration. The previous one was very heavy, was redundant, was corrupted. He wanted to slim it down. He wanted to make it more agile. And he wanted to have direct access to it. That's part of his taking things in his hands on a domestic level. I could read what, what Ustad Nesib Fazel in his famous biography of Sultan Abdelhamid summarized it as a five point of his domestic politics. First of all, it was to clean the country of the viruses which always appear claiming to be the cure and heal. To establish a material civilization built on a sound spiritual basis. To assimilate the West along with its positive sciences while avoiding the evil effects of his spiritual influence. To stay true to the character and dignity of the East while carefully protecting its tradition. 
to awaken in the body the doublet and government spirits, it would have as its main consideration moral, economic, and social superiority. And then to see all perfection and the means to perfection as residing in the Dean, to recover true passion and love of the Dean after its centuries-old degeneration, and to reinstate this as the overriding impulses of life, both at an individual and social level. So the dissolution of the parliament represented a radical shift in the politics of the Osmanli Daula. Now, Shikhar Dukadir writes something very profound about it. He says, despite getting out of Dolmabace, Abdulhamid could not, so to speak, get back to the top cafe, for the social modalities had already been pulverized over 100 years. Hildis was his war ground. There he pitched his tents. And it's interesting to know that in Hildis he built the Shadelizawia. Eh? And Sheikh Zafir, that was, Lib- uh, was Libyan, is buried there. <laughs> As a result of a strange synthesis that is just mentioned, he ordered uh, an Italian architect, Daronco, to design his mausoleum. It is very strange, not particularly beautiful, I don't particularly like it, but it's unique and is an expression of that synthesis between East and West that, that was part of his personality. Sultan Abdelhamid had a great love, for example, for Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yes, yes, he, he loved Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. He had, he had his, um, some of his men translating the book and reading it for him at night. Amazing. He loved Wagner. For the premiere of Parsifal of Wagner in Bayreuth, Sultan Abdelhamid bought a big bell. He wanted to buy the bell and he sent it to Wagner. In, uh, a bell? A bell, yes, I don't know, yeah, a bell was his contribution, that was his contribution, because he loved classical music as well. And he loved Wagner? He loved Wagner, yes. <sighs> he was a Wagnerian. His secretary, Tahsin Pasha, wrote, there was no way that a single piece of paper could get lost, no way that a case be neglected, any matter delayed or left pending, because Abdul Hamid personally monitored the matters presented to the chief secretariat. He continues saying, since the day of his enthronement, Sultan Hamid pursued a political line which focused all state affairs in the palace. It is for this reason that he could keep in touch with all matters regarding administration, civil service, the military, economics, science, and the deen, and was therefore able to expand his experience and knowledge. Sultan Hamid liked to learn about every matter and would inquire about every issue and try to understand everybody's situation and occupation. This political engagement, which meant intervention into the affairs and competence of the Supreme Court, was the inevitable outcome of the politics of centralization at Ildis. One could not expect the things to be otherwise when all force and power, all judgment and authority had been transferred to the palace. And that reflects his character. He basically, obviously within reason, but never left the palace. One would go to the mosque or go to the Juma yes. or, or go and yes. do public things, but I mean, he stayed in yes. Istanbul, in the yes. palace, yes. running the entire show. And Sultan, he was, he was on the forefront. Wow. He took the lead and he was the first one to give example. Wow. Obviously, great difference if you think about 
the weak sultan of the Tanzimat, the weak sultan who were controlled by, uh, by the Grand Wazirs, through women, alcohol, and every sort of vices and corruption. Sultan of the Lamid was obviously of a different nature. He had a different task. Eh? I, I, and I think that the relevance for us today as Muslim or Sultan Abdelhamid is also that capacity of resisting. He was able to resist even if the situation, you think about 1876, there is default on the repayment of the debt, the Balkans on fire, the Grand Wazir working for the British against his own people. He is agreed on a constitution and a parliament that would take all his power. Still, he was able to wait, to be patient, and then turn the things uh, in a different way. Mm. And uh, as I repeat, uh, Justin McCarthy, the great professor Justin McCarthy, who wrote uh, extensive uh, studies on the real massacres in the Osmanli Daulat, and the real history, he studied statistics, so he was able to have access to real information, and certainly not what was taught at university. And it, he clearly stated that at the beginning of the 20th century, the Osmanli Daulat was not that weak man that they claimed, but it was still strong and could have a continuity. He sees in the betrayal of Sultan al the cause of the downfall. Just quickly, did he pay off? The, did he manage to pay off the debt in full? He did. He did. But so, Sultan Abdul Hamid, from his centralized base in the Yildiz Palace, where he had full control over the entire administration of the empire, yes. like you mentioned, the economics, the the finance, military, the dean, etc., etc., across the whole show, and he managed to get the empire to a point where all of the foreign debts had been paid off. I mean, you mentioned betrayal, but like, if he got the empire to such a strong point, at what point does the, all of the efforts that he's made in re-establishing not only his own empire, but the deen and the caliphate in its entirety, at what point does that start to kind of crumble, so wow. to speak? We must think that the same powers with interest in spreading this new ideology that constituted the foundation of the Tanzimat were still operative, mm -hmm. as they were in Europe, were still acting. And they were the mean, as I said, and I don't, I don't want to speak about any conspiracy theory. I'm talking about clear historical evidence. The network were the Masonic lodges. Why in the Osmali Daulat, the Masonic lodges, were off-limit to the police. We were free port. So the Masonic lodges, they could plot, and the police could not have access. The idea of spreading a form of government that is congenial to the great bankers, in my opinion. I repeat, in my opinion. If you look at the sponsor of Mazzini, a sponsor of a great revolutionist, you find the British government. British government gave shelter to to Garibaldi, to Mazzini, to all the great anarchists uh, and revolutionists of the time, obviously with a goal in mind. Uh, we must not forget that. And the goal was to spread that political model. I found it around the central bank in 1912, 
at the head of the Central Bank of Turkey was Ernst Cassell. Ernst Cassell was a British. That group that called themselves the Young Turks of the Committee of Union and Progress were directly paid by the British government. And again, we must mention Venice, because the march against Sultan Abdelhamid in 1908 started in a very particular city, Salonica or Thessalonica. The leader of what they call Young Turks, this revolutionary organization that wanted to bring back the constitution and reform the state according to the Western model, the name Young Turks come from the movement of Mazzini, Giuseppe Mazzini, the Jovi, who created the Giovine Italia, the Young Italy, so they call themselves Giovanni Turchi, Young Turks, hmm, on the model of Mazzini. And uh, they were meeting in a Masonic lodge called Macedonia Resorta in, in Salonico, led by the notorious Emmanuel Carasso of the Carasso family, that is popular because of the Danone, eh, the, the nephew of Emmanuel Carasso, was the founder of the dairy product, the Danone, yogurt, etc. What he did, he took the Turkish yogurt and he spread it in the world, <laughs> making millions. And the third army, the third army corps, was used to meet in the premises of this Macedonia uh, resort, a lodge, led by this Emmanuel Carasso, who was a Jewish man, lawyer, based in uh, Salonico, of Venetian origin, like the Israeli, and who kept his link with Venice because of his collaboration with Count Volpi of Misurata. Now, Count Volpi of Misurata was a banker and he was leading the Banca Commerciale Italiana, the Italian Commercial Bank, who had direct interest in the Balkans. Volpi was linked to the city of London. So we can see from Salonica to Venice, to London. And somehow Venice represents a sort of uh, predecessor of the role that the mercantile role that England would take. In my opinion, it's not by chance that the Israeli himself was originally from Venice. And the Venice was a sea power like Britain and a mercantile uh, city. So there is a link that is mysterious, I, I, uh, but there is and there was. So the plot was uh, thought in England by Aubrey Herbert. Aubrey Herbert led all the operation in the Middle East during the First World War. And Lawrence of Arabia said that Aubrey Herbert was the real leader of the um, Young Turks. And they were contemporaries. They yes. knew each other. Yes, yes. Abraham was a high aristocracy, yeah, was very popular. John Buchan, the writer, wrote uh, a novel, Green Hornet, inspired on Aubrey Herbert. So they plotted from there. They plotted from London. The Third Army marched from Salonica to Istanbul, and they forced the Sultan to repristinate the Constitution. 1908. In 1909, there is an attempt of a counter-revolution. Just to take a step back, you mentioned the Third Army. Now, who were the Third Army? Now, there is the Third Army, Third Army Corps, 
They were officers. They were officers of the Osmanli army. And they betrayed the they Sultan? They betrayed the Sultan. They were plotting, they were meeting in this lodge, this Masonic lodge called Macedonia Resorta. And from that they marched, 1908, they marched on Istanbul and they forced the Sultan to re-establish, to bring back the constitution. So at that point where the third army that have marched on Sultan Abdul Hamid and forced him to rein, reinstate the constitution, he has gone ahead and reinstated it? He did, he did. There's nothing he could do. But the following year, the first army, there is a, as I said, counter-revolution, the first army is mostly Albanian, but they are unsuccessful. In 10 days, the third army managed to kill them all, to stop the insurrection, and Sultan Abdul Hamid is forced to abdicate. And then he's sent to Salonico. Sent to Salonico. They sent to Salonico, and amongst the three men who went to inform the Sultan of his exile is Carasso. Because Emmanuel Carasso, we must say that the leader of the third army and the main conspirators were not Muslim. And the evidence of it is in the sort of politics that they started to introduce once they took power. The forces were behind are the same forces that I say. They gave a central bank to Kassel, who called a British admiral as a head of a Turkish fleet, and it was a massive fleet are the one who started all the nationalistic war against the Armenians, against all the minorities, and who promoted an idea of Turkish purity, of Turkish nationalism that was not in the tradition. I had a young man coming uh, to the college to visit not long ago, and he was of Kurdish origin. And I asked, where are you from? I could see that it was slightly a bit darker. And he told me, I'm Kurdish. And he said, and, and now we are... We are not in a very good situation in Turkey. There is some kind of, I wouldn't call it uh, um, racism, but there is a certain distance. And when we are talking, it, under the Daulat, the Muslim, we are Muslim. We are not called Turkish or Kurd, we are called Muslim under the system of the millet. You take on the color of Allah. Yes. This nationalistic movement emerge in order to destroy the empires and create this political unit called nation-state with this democracy, with this interchangeable politician who have to answer to people who are not elected, who are behind the scene. Continuing the subject of the betrayal, I mentioned the role of Great Britain, who was essential, but Sultan Abdelhamid left us an account of the events that happened. Now, before I mention the letter that Sultan Adelamid wrote to Sheikh Abu Shamat, who was his spiritual teacher, at the time we must mention an important event. In 1896, Theodor Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, the Austrian Jew, promotes against nationalists, we encounter against nationalists, promotes this Zionist movement. And the idea already is about Palestine. So Theodor Herzl, backed by the Rothschild, asked for an encounter, for a meeting with Sultan Abdelhamid with the intention of buying Palestine, the land of Palestine. Sultan Abdelhamid 
refuses twice to receive him. And he explains also the reason of his refusal. He sent a letter to Philippe de Nevlinsky, who was a friend of Theodor Herzl, and he wrote, I cannot sell even a foot of land, for it does not belong to me, but to my people. My people have won this caliphate by fighting for it with their blood and have fertilized it with their bones. We will again cover it with our blood before we will allow it to be torn from us. The Osmania belongs not to me, but to the people. Let the Jews save the billions. When my empire is partitioned, they may get Palestine for nothing, but only our corpse will be divided. I will not agree to the vivisection. In fact, Theodor Herzl, when he was received by Sultan Abdelhamid, offered to the Sultan himself the enormous amount of money, more than 150,000 gold pounds. Plus, they offered to rebuild the fleet, they offered to open an Osmanli Islamic University in Palestine, uh, they, they, they wanted to grant a no-profit loan of 35 million golden liras to enhance the economy of the Dawlet, but Sultan Abdelhamid refuses. It's interesting because the grandson of Sultan Abdelhamid, in a recent interview on TRT, Arabic, on December the 9th, 2011, declared the Ottoman state did not collapse in a year or two, or even 10 or 20 years. It began when Sultan Abdelhamid made his decision in his meeting with Dr. Herzl. Herzl made several requests to meet Sultan Abdelhamid, and he was refused. Once, twice, and three times. The fourth time, he met him, and Herzl prepared the ground. He asked him for land in Palestine to serve as a place for the settlement of the Jews. When the Sultan rejected this request, that was the beginning of the fall of the Ottoman state. A decision was made that there should no longer be an Ottoman state, a caliphate or a sultanate. End of quotation. And in fact, in 1908, the Khrushchev, the first Rothschild office was open in Palestine, disguised as a bank. And in fact, I would like to, to conclude this, this, this conversation by reading this letter to, to Shikabu Shamat. The Sultan Abdelhamid, reclosed in his palace, wrote. Could I read it? Of course you can. Should I read the whole letter? Yes. Uh, Bismillah. <laughs> Yahoo, my effendi. I am continuing to read the Shadali Awrad and to fulfill the Shadali Wazifat day and night with the help of Allah. After this introduction, I would like to present to you the man of guidance, the truth that I did not abandon the Caliphate of Islam for any reason. It was rather that I have been forced to leave the Caliphate of Islam under pressure and threats from the leaders of the Committee of Union known as the Young Turks. These unionists have continuously insisted on the establishment of a national homeland for the Jews in the sacred territories and in Palestine, which I strictly refuse to accept and affirm. Whatever their threats and however strong their insistence was, I did not accept their proposal. Then they promised they would pay 150,000 English pounds in gold, but I refused this too. Responding to them, 
not for 150,000 English pounds, and not even if you piled up all the gold in the world before me could I accept your proposal. I have served the Millet of Islam and the Ummah of Muhammad for more than 30 years. I cannot put a black mark on the whole of the Muslims, the Sultans and Caliphs of Islam, my fathers and ancestors. Therefore, I definitely cannot accept your proposal. After this strict and final reply from me, they agreed on my dethronement and conveyed to me that I was to be sent to Salonika. I accepted this last proposal from them and praised Allah and continue to praise him that he granted me success in refusing to accept the establishment of a Jewish state on the sacred territories and Palestine, which would have been an everlasting disgrace to both the Osmanli Dawlat and the Muslim world. All that happened, happened because of this. I praise the exalted Lord for this. I close my letter and finish my word in this important matter with the following. I kiss your blessed hands and ask you kindly to accept my respectful regards. I convey my greetings to all my brothers and intimate friends. 22nd of September, 1329, Servant of the Muslims, Abdul Hamid. Rahimullah. Beautiful. It's letter is Thank you for listening to this week's episode. During the episode, Dr. Ali mentioned that there was a point in time where the fez was worn across the Muslim world as a sign of allegiance to the caliphate in Istanbul. So I wanted to conclude this episode by recounting a conversation that I had a few months ago during the heat of the events that were happening in Palestine. I was sitting at a dinner next to a friend of mine who works for one of these big corporates in Cape Town. Now he was wearing a fez, so I was complimenting him on his fez, and we were talking about the origins of the fez. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's really interesting because a couple of days ago, we had a, a, a wear a hat to work day, and everyone that was working in the office had to wear a hat. So he decided that he was going to wear his fez. Now, on arriving at the office, he's in, in one of the communal areas, this colleague of his that he doesn't know, who, doesn't, who never really comes to speak to him, but is obviously working in the same office, he knows he's a Cypriot Jew, walks over from the other side of the office to come up to him to specifically say to him, you know, if all of the Muslims wore that hat instead of waving the Palestinian flag, then we would start to get scared. And as a Cypriot Jew, he knew the history and he knew what he was talking about. He understood. We've been looking backwards to understand where we are now. So in the next episode, I'm going to start looking forwards and seeing what is it that we can do to really start becoming more heroic. What is it that we can be doing to start raising the flag of Islam in our time. So... Stay tuned. Thank you.